You're listening to Women's Waves, a podcast by Vancouver Rape Relief and Women's Shelter. My name is Florence Bellepage. Thank you for listening. On this episode, our topic is the impact of COVID-19 on women. We interviewed the Vancouver Committee for Domestic Workers and Caregivers that advocates for the rights of women working in the domestic and caregiving field, which are mostly immigrant women and women of color. We also talked with CIS, Strength and Sisterhood, a group composed of women with lived experience in the prison system, as well as feminist activists. They are calling for the abolition of prison. And lastly, you will hear my interview with two of Vancouver Rape Relief members about male violence against women during the pandemic. It is clear that COVID-19 did not create the struggles women are currently facing. It highlighted and exasperated the existing struggles of oppressed classes. The demands you'll hear from feminists speaking on this episode are not new. They did not arise as a result of the pandemic. Some of the demands women and other social justice groups have been fighting for for decades. Uh, my name is Julie Diasta. So I'm one of the pioneers of the Vancouver Committee for Domestic Workers and Caregivers Rights. In paper, I'm the coordinator, but we don't have any title for each and every one, so we are all the same. So I thank you for this opportunity. I'm Lotis Kalusa. I am one of the steering committee members of CDWCR since 2007. Tell us about your group. So um, it was established in 1992, the Vancouver Committee for Domestic Workers and Caregivers' Rights. Um, is a nonprofit organization that provides assistance to foreign care workers in seeking improvements to their employment conditions and immigration status. CDWCR members are domestic workers, care workers, former domestic workers, community advocates, and allies supporting landed status now campaign. CDWCR also do education through workshops under CareNet project, which aims to assist care workers and domestic workers in British Columbia to integrate into their communities beyond the initial settlement process. CDWCR is also a member organization of BC Employment Standards Coalition and member organization of Migrants' Rights Network, which is a cross-Canada alliance to combat racism and fight for migrants' justice. We believe that our struggle for justice and equality are also struggle of other migrants workers. Can you also tell us a little bit about the history of migrant women doing the care and domestic work in Canada? Before, um, way back 1900, when, when domestic workers, caregivers coming from um, England or Iris, uh, those are white women, they come here as, as permanent residents. 
So, and when it started in the later years, when the um, women of color started to come in, that's where all the very, um, how can I say this? It's, um, it's temporary. It's temporary workers and also women of color. It's because of the women of color, it's because of the way, like in the Philippines. So in the Philippines, women are easy to come out and also working outside of, of the country. Or in men will stay home and uh, they don't want to venture. So, um, and also because uh, women can work for the benefit of the families and also for whatever they take just to help out not only in the family unit but also and the family as a whole and again education for the for the children are the most important for the families and also because of poverty so women can easily just leave the country because of the children and because we don't want to have a cycle of um, poverty. So even a small, even not, not valuing the work, but then in our mind, it's um, in our mind, we can help the country as well as as well as the families, most importantly, the families. And also, I think it also tied in to um, the politics in the country where we came from, because I can say about the Philippines, women can just work anywhere and um, it doesn't matter how much we earn, as long as we can help out again the family. What are your general demands and campaigns? Calling for landed status now. So I think that is a good, that is a right demand for domestic worker caregivers. Uh, we say first, it is, we are essential work. And also caregiving is permanent. It is not temporary. So that's why we want landed status upon arrival. And also, the childcare and high medical needs in Canada, it's still especially in high medical needs and, and um, elderly care are up there. So it's not temporary. So if really, again, I will say this, if we're work, if we were, if we, if Canada needs caregivers, we have to be in the permanent residence. The, the Canada, if Canada needs us, we have the choice, we have to have a, a permanent residence upon, upon arrival. Most of the caregivers that I, I was involved in, that's the, that's the one that they always want to be, longing to be permanent residents so that we have the same rights as other workers in Canada. In addition to landed status now, what are your other campaigns? So uh, for now, we have our campaign for uh, 
immigration status for all. So that means that all the um, migrant workers and any different field like farm workers in, um, in construction workers and, and any other workers that are temporary should be permanent residents. And also our demand as of now, as provincially, is the paid sick leave. You mentioned uh, your demand for paid sick leave. What are you hearing from the women you're working with about the impact of COVID in their lives? Uh, due to COVID, there are so many, uh, like me, when I, I was laid off temporarily as a out of school care. But for me, because I'm a Canadian citizen, I can apply for EI. And also I took advantage of the emergency, the BC emergency benefit. But for those care workers or migrant workers who are who are outside of Canada having a vacation or holiday, then they cannot receive the they cannot receive the CERB or the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. And also, if their work permit is expired because of the long process of immigration. So their SIN also expires and also the MSP expires. So uh, if we get, if the caregiver gets sick, then it, they cannot be treated. But here in BC, fortunately, that the BC government allow care workers to be treated the same as any other workers but what if in if the covid is hopefully will be have a vaccine if if our work permit is expires then they cannot they cannot um they're not eligible to, to be treated or otherwise they can but they have to pay it time so uh there are care workers who are now laid off as well it's because of uh, it's because of their employers are laid off so um it kind of chain reaction and then those who are still working in their employer's home they are now back to live in because their employers are now scared for their caregivers to be out and maybe get some virus. So now the abuse and vulnerability of the care workers are back to the same as before. So um, that alone is, is um, the abuse that they are going through long hours and also um, even their employers are sick, they have to keep on working because of if they have to complete the 24 months because that's one of the requirements and also and also they have they have to have their requirements to take their english and all these things that they have to think about so they have to stay in their employers it doesn't matter uh, um, if uh, they are paid or not. We have this one care worker 
that she was laid off, but because temporarily, but because uh, she's still working in her employer's home without pay in exchange to accommodation. So, uh, and she was saying that she doesn't have a choice because there's no place for her to stay. And also we have a case that some, uh, she just had uh, surgery, uh, cancer, and again, she was laid off because of her employer doesn't want her to recuperate in her place and also uh, no place to go. Without CDWCR, right now she is homeless. And just recently, Lotus was involved with, with one of our member, well, friend of our member. It's also, she just had um, surgery of appendicitis. Again, it's this, almost the same, the same, um, the same thing that happened to her. Her employer is not uh, ask, uh, letting her in back into her home. So through our work, again, again, then she's now recuperating and the spare home of the employer. Think about that at the beginning. She was just saying, the employer was just saying that, okay, you have to find a, a friend that you can stay in while you are recuperating. And then all of a sudden, when, when she was assertive enough through our coaching, the employer was saying that, oh, by the way, we have a spare house that you can stay there for a while. But then there's no food, there's no blanket, nothing in there for her. So again, Lotus and I put together the uh, food hamper and all the personal staff and then brought it to her she she was so afraid even even when we delivered the food to her we cannot go into the gate because there was a camera and then the employer doesn't want anybody inside the house i mean she's she just got operate got operation and she cannot leave anything she's not allowed to leave anything but because of she was so scared she can't do anything I felt so bad at that time and she was crying. So it's it's really heartbreaking to see this kind of situation of the care workers, especially with this uh, pandemic uh, uh, situation. I mean, the COVID. And also on the, the mental health of the caregivers right now, it's very high. It's because of if they are um, applying for their permanent residency, it's a unprocessed, but until now, there is no result yet. So there is no approval. They don't know what's going on. And there's particular members, she was saying that all of the bio biometrics of my family is now expiring. So I'm so lonely now and I was laid off. Yes, it's true. There is a CERB, but if you are paying renting, renting $1,500, what happened to your $500? So it's good that there's help out there, but again, it's not enough for 
even for a single person because of, especially in Vancouver or anywhere, I think, because she's in Richmond and it's the same thing. So there's a lot of things that's uh, going on and really have impact on the caregivers. So what are your demands that are specifically related to COVID? Federally, uh, again, uh, are very, very specific. Uh, it's about the full immigration status for all. So I, as I mentioned it earlier, but this is a very specific, especially now in COVID, that we want, we want all migrant workers in all levels or in all categories, construction workers, everywhere, all the migrant workers to have a landed status now. And uh, right now, even at this this COVID, because now we know that care workers, uh, farm workers are essential in this community, in this society, because without the farm workers and the care workers that working despite of COVID, then I don't know what's go- what will happen to our society. So now that um, this ha- the, the, the COVID is here, they are talking about that the care, healthcare workers are heroes, but Yes, but you have to treat it with value. about your group uh, Strength and Sisterhood. Strength and Sisterhood was originally Candace uh, Pilgrim incorporated in 1995 and it was uh, brought about by a group of women led by a woman named Gail Horry who was serving a life sentence Um, and she and others recognized a need for uh, like advocacy uh promotion advocacy around women's equality in corrections and promotion of um abolition of prison uh promotion of accountability for anywhere that holds women in detention or incarcerates them in any way so jails detention centers penitentiaries um so she and a number of other women many of whom were serving sentences themselves or had served sentences themselves as well as academics, professors, and activists in the community uh, joined CIS, not um, created CIS, Strength and Sisterhood, uh, to be able to speak to some of that, those issues, uh, to, to have some women with lived experience put their like put their experience forward to have um, to hold government and and bureaucracy to account for the ways that they were breaching women's equality rights. 
uh, like especially when it comes to prisons in particular. So they did some really good stuff back in the 90s and early 2000s and then it sort of um, just petered out for a while until we resurrected it in the fall of last year, the early winter fall, late fall, early winter. It was revived back in November of 2019 now, Alia uh, basically to continue to address gaps in advocacy for women. Um, specifically, uh, we, CIS, um, wanted to give a voice to women in the segregation lit litigation, uh, the BCCLA case, um, but it was uh, soon thrown out. Um, I think, well, we, I personally think it was thrown out because uh, the new, uh, SIUs were created and they didn't want to um, basically look bad because they just renamed segregation there. Um, so that was like a huge reason why we kind of started as well as um, like CIS is a group of women with lived experience inside prison as well as professionals. So um, me as someone with lived experience, um, I've I did a lot of speaking before and I guess I just noticed that there was gaps in services for women. As an abolitionist and feminist group, how do you link women's oppression and the criminalization of women? What became very clear to me, like, and becomes more and more clear the longer I do this work, is that prison is the place where women's inequalities just sort of like converge and are intensely magnified. It's, you know, women go to prison because of their circumstances and women are the fastest growing prison population in Canada and around the world. And it's directly tied to the way that we have ripped the social safety net out. It's like this idea of austerity and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and we're cutting social services and, you know, you know, you should, you shouldn't be looking for handouts and all of these myths about poor people and the deserving poor versus the undeserving poor. And when you cut services, you cut them to women first. So women's like lived realities in the community as, as in poverty, uh, tie them to experiences of abuse can lead to, or be exacerbated by addictions. Uh, and then it becomes this terrible cycle where women end up becoming criminalized. We use the word criminalized because, you know, some people say something like women in conflict with the law. And, you know, what we say is, no, it's the law coming into conflict with women's lives. It's women are becoming criminalized by the processes out there or the lack of anywhere for them to go. And so, like, this is this is sort of like what I got to learn or hear when I got to shadow Kim Pate for a year, uh, you know, and, and then, and then I got to see born out when I was in behind the prison walls, looking at the realities of women there. And then the prison itself on top of it all, it becomes like an extension. It becomes like the state extending the inequality and like pushing it further and extending the violence against the women. So, you know, like most women in prison, and it depends on who you ask, which researchers you ask, so some will say all, have extensive histories of violence in their past. And then the prison comes in and strips you naked. 
and you've been raped a bajillion times in your life and now you've got to get naked for somebody wearing a full uniform. And, and yeah, like Candace said, women are in jail for economic survival for the most part. We're in there surviving because we have to feed our children, because we have to feed our families. We have to feed, unfortunately, an addiction. We've been in a lifetime of abuse that you can't get away from because everywhere you turn, there's more abuse. So it's just, uh, it's a cycle. And yeah, like I said, I guess a huge thing is that these male models don't work for us women. And that was another reason why CIS was originally started back in 1995. And we still see this to this day. They CIS back, I, I can't remember, it was 1996 when they made those submissions. Um, but they, you can still look it up online and uh, they made submissions and everything they asked for is exactly what we're fighting for today. And it's been like, you know, 15 years later. So nothing's changed in these years and years of reform. And that's another reason why we're not reformists is because reform doesn't work. You can't heal in a place that makes you hurt and prisons hurt people. So if you think about the, the way that police intersect with women's lives, like as soon as women are criminalized in any way and they have, um, interactions with police, they become like immediately and immensely more vulnerable to police violence. And that's even more compounded if they're racialized, they come from a racialized minority. So, you know, the RCMP we know was created specifically to control indigenous populations. So, you know, an indigenous woman who's now criminalized is now even more vulnerable to police violence, um, well, I mean, indigenous communities, period. I mean, we know all about historical examples of police using force, police not intervening when other community members have used lethal force against uh, racialized minorities and in particular indigenous men in Canada. Um, you know, we've, we've had numerous commissions and reports that talk about, you know, women as victims of police sexual violence. Um, you know, so, the, just the comment that, you know, when they become criminalized, it's like another point of contact with police that puts them in a more vulnerable position. And women aren't believed, women aren't believed at the best of times. And then you add layers of inequality to that, including criminalization and skin color and, and indigeneity. The thing that like really hits home for us is that like so often or all too often, the lessons learned about some of the human rights abuses are born on the backs of the most marginalized women. So, and like some of the gains made in, in like prison reform, and we're not reformists, we're abolitionists, but like, you know, cases that are one that are good precedents, um, you know, lessons that are learned, inquiries that have really good uh, recommendations arising from them are all on the backs of the most marginalized women. So the Louise Arbor inquiry, the commission of inquiry into certain events is born on the backs of women who are in segregation, many of whom didn't see the outside of a prison cell for another 20 years after that. And the majority of whom in that, all of them, I think, except for one, I could be misspeaking, but I think all except for one or maybe two were actually indigenous women and they were all in SAG and they all got stripped and shackled by a bunch of men. Um, you know, and so we get the Louise Arbor inquiry, which is great. And it's got all of these awesome recommendations that 25 years later, by the way, the anniversary is July 10th, 25 years still haven't been implemented. Uh, 
And yet the women who like paid the price for that. So one of your main demand would be women's liberation. Women's substantive equality, because you can't really do anything else without that as a foundation. And then the abolition of prisons, like the, like that's like the, those two together, if we could achieve those, I mean, if we could achieve women's substantive equality, then we wouldn't need prisons, would we? Uh, you know, because women would be free from violence and there you have it. And, but yes, so women's substantive equality and the abolition of prisons. And so what that means for us, I would say is like building back up of community. So places for women to go, guaranteed livable income, uh, universal childcare or, or, you know, or, or working models that, that women can, you know, be the kinds of mothers that they want to be, but not have to sacrifice their income. And that's like, that's, that's the real crime that we're putting women in positions of such like gross inequality and inability to actually support themselves and their families, that the only place that doesn't say no to them is the prison, the social assistance office. Sorry, no, you don't qualify. You have a baby to feed, but no. Uh, you know, a lot of times women with mental health issues, there's, there's no space uh, in the hospitals. Um, you know, employment opportunities for women uh, and women's ability, uh, women's equality in the workplace. Like, we still don't have that. Uh, you know, women are sexually assaulted and women don't have a place to go from their abusers. What are your campaigns and demands specific to women in prison? Yeah, so... I think one thing that cis, um, like one of the huge reasons we revived it was is a fight for segregation. So that's a huge thing that, you know, if we can't close the prisons down right now, that's one thing that I'd like to see right away is segregation ended. So segregation is you're locked in a cell for 23 hours a day. You, if you're lucky, you're allowed out for an hour a day. Uh, your food's handed to you through mail slots or on the floor under a slot. Uh, you have no communication with, you know, no meaningful human contact whatsoever. Uh, personally, I spent close to three years of my five-year sentence in segregation, and I've been released for over 10 years now, and I still have serious, like, everyday, like, problems because of it. The anxiety I face, the, you know, the, it's, it's really hard to, ex like, explain to some people, but, like, the like I said, I can I've said so many times I can go to one store and be okay and then I go to another store and I sit in my car for forty five minutes or an hour because I have the worst anxiety to go inside and I can't do it and you know, just the I'm socially awkward. There's just like they said, there's there's so much long term like you know, things that I didn't even realize that was going to happen to me while I was sitting inside there. It was torture enough. Segregation was the first and only place I ever wanted and contemplated taking my life. Um, segregation brought me to a place where I didn't even think I deserved to be a mom. It's, it's horrifying in there. And, and I couldn't even imagine what these women that haven't, you know, even done anything wrong inside there is going through right now, having to sit there and be in segregation somebody that has mental health issues someone that has things as fast that go inside their head as i do you cannot sit inside your mind for that long you know it, it destroys you so yeah segregation like i said it's something that that it's torture they've recently rewrote the bill and renamed segregation 
Um, and it's actually sad because all the speaking that we've done, um, like I said, the BC CLA case was thrown out over it. And it's like all the work that we've done and all the, I've done two or three um, like speaking engagements at the parliament building to the members of parliament trying to explain how damaging segregation is. So I think that's one huge thing that CIS will, that we like demand right away is we want to continue fighting to end segregation. So Leah is talking about specifically solitary confinement, but you know, like the BCCLA case, um, which like, you know, which sought to limit the use of segregation, meaning solitary confinement, confinement the way that Aaliyah describes, to 15 days, um, really didn't consider women and women's needs and what segregation was for women specifically, because segregation can be for women exactly like Aaliyah described, that's what it was for her. But for women in prison, segregation can be more than that too. Uh, like, like they have all these euphemisms for segregation, so like medical, uh, inter medical watch or medical you're on some kind of suicide watch you're on a medical intervention you uh, modified movement these are all sort of words that they use which basically mean we're in charge of what you do when you do it and we lock you in a cell basically and you also have a campaign to end strip searches they could end strip searching of women in prison end the trauma and have zero increased risk to public or to the safety of the institution. Uh, it, it serves to do nothing but traumatize women, re-traumatize them, and impact their ability to re-release into the community. Frankly, uh, for for little to no gain, like they don't actually get any anything out of it. Like they they say that they do the strip searching because they're looking for uh, contraband on women, but the contraband that they find, if they find any, is like you know minimal. Like the um, an organization in Australia, uh, Sisters Inside, uh, did a, an access to information request and what they found was that over the number, like thousands a year of strip searches that happened, uh, like the only contraband that was found was like a nail polish bottle or something like that. Like, you know, clearly not a threat to the safety of the institution and yet every single woman who's been strip searched is at, like now triggered and re-traumatized every time that happens. What are you hearing from women inside prison about the impact of COVID on them? There was a outbreak of eight women. I believe it was eight women at, at GVI. Um, during that time, there was uh, reports that there were guards that did rounds there that were also doing rounds in other houses. Uh, they weren't wearing PPE as they did rounds. Um, there was reports that um, at the beginning staff were walking through houses coughing, joking about, oh yeah, there's, there's Corona or COVID and, you know, trying to, I guess, like put fear in the women that, you know, they were going to be getting sick, all laughing about it, like they were stuck in there. So there's, there's lots of calls from women at GVI, um, just with numerous complaints around that. Um, there's, no programs. There was no programs. Uh, um, let's see what else there's. We, like I said, there's been no increase in parole um, at all. There's not even women, women are being encouraged to apply for parole. Um, it's basically the same thing that we've always heard for the years of that I've been doing advocacy work, their POs and their um, 
you know, primary workers are trying to just convince women to waive their parole rights. Um, same thing, no help in regards to that. Like in the Correction the Conditional Release Act, there's section 17, 21, 81, and 121, which can basically allow women to serve their time in the community. There's indefinite medical UTAs that the warden can, you know, put at their discretion, and none of this is being put in place. They're basically sitting in there. Minister of Public Safety Bill Blair in late March called on Correctional Service of Canada and the Parole Board of Canada to work together to support as many releases as they could possibly safely manage. And we, as an organization, put out a request to the Parole Board of Canada to ask them to tell us about how many increased uh, parole applications they were getting. And what they told us, this was a couple weeks ago, mind you, was that it's an average of one extra a week. And for women, it's one extra total over all the ones that were the year before. So what we're seeing isn't that they're rushing through parole applications for women, we're actually seeing the opposite effect. So now because the prisons are on these like weird pseudo semi lockdowns, uh, women now don't have access to their visiting. They don't have access to be able to make their release planning with their community organizations. They don't either have an inability to complete the programs that are on their correctional plan, which remember they're over classified. So now they have all of these programs on their correctional plan that they have to take that if they were actually properly classified, they wouldn't have to take them. Uh, but now they can't have access to them because of COVID uh, and the tensions in the prisons are rising. Women are now self-harming. Women are, which are like not community, uh, community behavior. And so their parole applications are not ready and parole officers are asking women to waive and women are not going up before the parole board. And so what we're seeing is the opposite effect when we have COVID, which is like this incredible opportunity to show the world that women in prison are not a risk to public safety, let's just release them. Uh, and even if CSC doesn't see it like we do, which is just release them, they could at least be supporting them for, uh, for release in a, staggered, in a staggered safe way. And they're not even doing that. It's, Kenya, for example, when COVID started, they just they just like released 5,000 prisoners just like that. They just did it. Mm. Uh, you know, lots of lots of other areas. There's like lots of historical examples of that happening through throughout the world and in different in different places of the world. As soon as somebody was uh, was um, got COVID, it spread like wildfire. At Joliet Institution, there were over 50 women, and I think over 50 staff too, like instantly, who, who got COVID within a matter of a few days or weeks. Uh, and, at, and at GVI, it was eight women. And so they've been able to stop the spread of COVID in prisons because they're coming down so hard on the conditions of the women inside. And what we say is, just let them out. Just let them out. Women do not pose a risk to public safety. They just don't. Uh, women who have killed are more less likely than anybody else to reoffend. Way less likely than anybody else. They are the they are the public safety. They are the least public safety risk of any prisoner out there. Community-based sentences are considerably more effective than carceral-based sentences. If you serve your sentence in the community, you are way less likely to reoffend than if you have to serve a time of imprisonment. And the reasons for that are obvious. You lose your housing, you lose your children if you're a woman, 
because most women who go to prison are primary care parents of their children. So they're losing their housing, they're losing their children, they're losing any employment opportunities they have. If they're in school or they're doing any kind of training, it's gone the second they're in prison. If they have the opportunity to serve their sentences in the community, they can hold on to those pieces, which are greater indicators of their success in reintegration and rehabilitation later on. What's been happening instead is we're locking the prisons down and we're not giving women an opportunity to get out. And then I guess like more recently, they, the women have got some PPE now, but now they're getting charged if they're not seen wearing their masks. So now there's getting more institutional charges. The security's increasing. They're still locked down. Um, women are getting out for 50 minute a day time slots, I believe. I don't know if they still are, but at one time they were getting out for 50 minutes a day. That's it, where they had to alternate the yard time, all of that. So for months, they've been in the state for months. So they live in houses, but they've only been allowed out. So this is the women at GVI. I don't know the circumstances for everybody else, but I suspect it's the same. So there are six prisons across the country where federally incarcerated women are imprisoned. Uh, we we know a, a bit more about the women at GVI because we have relationships with some of them and their family members are calling um, and some of them have the ability to call us like they've got special permission to call us but so what that means is that there are you know eight to eight to twelve women in a house and they're not allowed out of their house but for 50 five zero minutes each day and it's been like that since the middle of March yeah, since March. So women, um, there's obviously starting to report more self-harm. Um, there's been some more suicide attempts, cutting. Their phones are limited. There's, I believe, one unit where, one or two units, maybe even more units at GVI where the phone's outside of the unit. So they can't, they are only allowed on them certain times. The, the amount of women on there have to share the time out. What are your specific demands in regards to COVID? We put out a letter writing campaign around COVID where we uh, had templates and postcards and a bunch of information for people so that they can um, send letters to the, the Minister of Public Safety, Bill Blair. Um, and so we got that off, I'd like to say, that was back in April now maybe when we got the letter writing campaign going. Um, that's another thing that we still, you know, are actively, you know, keeping our eye on every day is the COVID situation. Um, we had a panel with Kim Pate, another member of CIS, Renee Rock, um, David Milgard, other member, Savannah. Um, and it was basically calling for the end of like a, a mass decarceration of women. My name is Sunam, and I am a collective member at Vancouver Rape Relief and Women's Shelter. Hi, I'm Ila, and I'm also a collective member of Vancouver Rape Relief and Women's Shelter. 
What impact did COVID had on male violence against women? COVID did not stop male violence against women. Yes, not only that, we know in some countries there is some researches and there are some researches and data that show that there actually increase of violence against women and cases of femicide. And it really exposed what we already know as frontline workers that the home is very often the most dangerous place for women and children. But while the COVID, as Sunam said, did not stop um, did not stop men violence, it also didn't stop women's resistance. And women found many ways to seek help and to support other women who were in a crisis. And Sunam has some examples, and so do I. How did women contact us during the pandemic? So women who live with batters have always had to be creative in the way they reach out for help. So we just saw that continuing to happen. Women have had to wait until there is a moment that they have alone, especially if he's now also working from home. I had a woman tell her husband that he's going to take her that she's going to take her daughter to the playground so she can get away and call our lines. And women also sent more emails to our info at rapereliefshelter.bc.ca email account. One of our barriers that I noticed that uh, typically women who do not have cell phones would usually just go to their nearest p- place of business and ask to use their phone or ask a stranger if she could borrow their phone and make a phone call. But, but this wasn't possible during COVID-19. I had to advocate for a woman to be able to use a phone at her local shopper's drug mart so I can help get her safe after she had emailed us. She had very limited access to a laptop, so it was difficult to arrange a way to send a cab to her. We had quite a lot of women texting their mothers, their friends, and their sisters, and they would call us first to create the immediate connection. And through them, we arranged women's escape, or we sent a taxi, or we met the woman in a particular location. Uh, We had women driving from another province with their children while arriving here and being safe calling us. And we also had women calling us from another province first to make sure that we will be welcoming uh, to them when they do arrive with the children. We have women jumping on ferries, getting rides from friends. And in general, we saw a lot, a lot of mutual aid and mutual support. We had mothers calling us, seeking help for their daughters, sisters, and friends. And we saw that in many cases, women who were not safe at their home, they had friends um, opening their home and, and welcoming their to their house. We had neighbors calling us. We had a man finding a, a woman in his yard. Um, and he called us. We, saw, we had another call from a man who saw a woman who looked desperate in the street, and he gave her his uh, cell phone, and she called us through him. So we saw a lot of examples of people women in particular, but men as well, being aware, being responsive, and bridging between women in need in our services. So some of the calls that we received are in many ways similar to calls that we get during regular times. Like Sunam said, um, a lot of women called us um, because they were trying to fling abusive men, and usually they have some kind of respite or a way to get away in the moment. They're going to work, they send the kid to school, and this possibility was not available to them. But we also got many other calls, as we usually get um, on the crisis line. We had women calling, women in prostitution calling us, some women 
use the moment of COVID to actually consider um, exiting prostitution. So they wanted emotional support, but also housing and other services. We had women who already left prostitution a few months ago, but they were still escaping particular John or a pimp. Um, we had a woman who was trafficked to British Columbia from another province, and we helped her to get back home. And we had a woman who was in British Columbia trafficked from another country, so we helped her to secure some kind of temporary status and get housing. And in relation to prostitution and COVID, I wanted to make a point that there is now really a troubling call to allow prostitution to resume, uh, both in Canada and other places in, in the world. And the argument, which is a very valid argument, is that women in prostitution do not receive economic support and are desperate financially. And we want to say that this is true, and it has been true, and that's why many women do resort to prostitution. But the support that women in prostitution need and should have is not to be um, engaged with uh, men and exploitation again, but to receive immediate and comprehensive support um, from the different government. And we're definitely calling on Canada to immediately apply serve eligibility to women who've been in prostitution. The solution cannot be women resorting to prostitution to, to survive. There is one kind of call that we did not receive during COVID, and which we usually do get, and it's about date rape and rape that happened in parties because the social distancing did mean that women are not engaging in new romantic relationships or having much less uh, social encounters. Um, obviously, as soon as um, province moved to phase two and people were re-engaging in social engagement and social events, immediately we got called from women who've been date raped. So there was a pause on this phenomena, and as soon as there was um, allowance for continuation of social engagement, women again were um, vulnerable to this form of male violence. And what did women tell us, and what were women's requests? Uh, so women told us that their batters were paying a lot more attention to them than normal. One woman revealed that she noticed her husband was going through her belongings a lot more, trying to get any sort of information on her that he could possibly use against her. He was really worried. She was really worried while planning her escape that he would get a hunch and escalate. She had to pick a very specific date and time that she was certain that he wouldn't be home. And I arranged for shelter movers who had their private security and a police officer present in case he did show up. And because of COVID-19, women did not have access to their normal supports like friends, family, therapy, exercise, and other activities for self-care that would normally help them cope. This meant that more women were calling our lines for emotional support to help them cope with their isolation. And this meant scheduling one-hour-long phone calls or video calls. Women also asked for a lot more physical help, like financial assistance, so we help by offering more grocery cards or cleaning supplies. We've been in touch with quite a few women who... The previous connection was based on the fact that they were not safe and we provided some safety for them. And now they're independent, they're not in a relationship with an abusive men, and they're caring for themselves and their children, but we're still very much part of their community. So many women like that called us asking for material needs. 
What did we offer them? We offered the usual things we offer women, which is safety planning, getting women safe in the moment, hotel space, emotional support, help navigating the criminal justice system and family court, and financial assistance to help with groceries or cleaning supplies. Um, school supply, toys, some women needed furniture, computers, way to assist the children with online learnings. Um, some women need help with getting medications, money for food or food itself. So we found ourselves happily providing a lot um, of material needs for women who are now safe from the abusive men but are struggling like many other women with economic difficulties. And as an organization, how did we adapt our services? When our transition house is full, we will always help get a woman safe, whether it's another transition house or paying for a hotel. Due to COVID-19, another way we adjusted was meeting fewer women in person and moved to online platforms. We also moved our support group online. We still accompanied women to rape kits and police statements and family court as normal. We still continue to advocate to state agencies and push the police to give these women who've experienced male violence a good response. We have now started allowing more in-person meetings with women with proper social distancing measures. Yes, uh, other ways that we adapted is by doing some public education work using online video platforms. We had a weekly political volunteer uh, conversations with our trainees that were uh, not coming anymore in person. We reached out also to women uh, in our community that we don't know. We did uh, consciousness raising online with them. We also participated in online events like the Forum on uh, Male Violence Against Women by the Feminist Collective FIST. And we were part of different conversations with our allies using online video conference platforms as well. So in a way, because we had to find a way to maintain our public education work and our crisis work, we kind of um, started experimenting with online tools that we were not in particularly informed from before. And I believe those actually tools can help us in the long run, even when social distancing is no longer a problem, because it will allow us to have relationship with callers, with allies, beyond geographical boundaries. What do you think should happen now? We have seen the provincial and federal government come through with economic support for funding frontline services and providing more immediate shelters. This shows that where there is a will, there is a way to help battered women's needs. Not only that, I think that um, the financial um, supplements, the CERB and other supplements that the government provided people did expose um, the hypocrisy around welfare aid. Because if the government acknowledges that people cannot live on less than $1,000 a month, how can people in this province and in the country as a whole can live on rates that are almost a third of that on a regular basis if they are recipient of income assistance. I think in the bigger picture, what the COVID epidemic did, it exposed um, the racial and the sex inequalities that we already knew are existing, and it highlighted how much uh, women are doing care work, paid and unpaid care work, how much we're relying on migrant workers in the care work for the elderly and for the sick, and how much, how poorly they're compensated, 
It exposed um, who is vulnerable to the COVID and who is in the front line of responsive, being responsive to the COVID. And m most often than not, it's people of color and it's women. We see an opportunity, and there are many, many calls from different levels of grassroots organization and from the United Nations level to have a new contract, a new social contract locally and globally that really respond to uh, people's needs and strive to undermine the existing inequality. And that and the profound leadership that the Black Lives Matter is offering, starting from North America, but really now they spread all over the global north about racism and how the state, instead of support people of color, is using its mechanism and mainly the police and the criminal justice system to oppress people of color. And if we take those elements into account, we see a really impressive uh, uprising and demands from all level of government, and it's matched by a lot of community mutual aid and mutual support. The pandemic has hit vulnerable people harder, and the government has an obligation to not only support us now, but make sure that any crisis that arises will not unequally impact our society in the future. So once more, Vancouver Rape Relief and other grassroots groups are demanding that the provincial and federal government deal with inequalities and respond to sex, race, and class-based oppression. So we are asking for livable, affordable housing and free unlimited public transit. We want food security, and by that we mean healthy food. We want the 50-year-old feminist demand of universal childcare. We need post-secondary education that's free and free public health services that include optic care, dental care, recovery and treatment care. We are joining our allies who are calling for landed status for all, especially for migrant workers. And like many other groups, we are asking for a basic income, but we want a guaranteed livable income. Women's Waves is produced in Vancouver, Canada, by Vancouver Rape Relief and Women's Shelter. You can find our episodes on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, Mixcloud, and our website, rapereliefshelter.bc.ca. What you're hearing is our theme song. It's called Sisterhood, and it's created by Music Liberatory. <laughs>